We are, as I say, in 1 Thessalonians. It's hard to know where to break up this passage because the same theme runs from chapter 2, verse 17, down to the end of chapter 3, verse 13. But as you know, that's a lot of verses for yours truly to cover in one message. So I broke it up into two halves. Uh, but the theme is, I couldn't care more. And we see Paul's care for these new Christians in Thessalonica, starting at verse 17. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen your faith, or strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Elie Weissel observed, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. When we don't care about someone, we don't love them. You know, we often hear the expression, I couldn't care less. Somebody maybe tells you about a problem and you don't want to hear about it. Couldn't care less. Or the more modern, shortened version is, whatever. You know, that phrase, whatever, it means I really don't care about it or if it's a person about you and what you're going through. Years ago, I read about a woman in New York City who heard screams below in the street and it was annoying to her, so she went over and closed her window so that those screams no longer bothered her. So somebody is being beaten or attacked or, or raped or even murdered on the street below. Hey, whatever. She just blocked it out because she was more concerned about her comfort than she was about that very needy person. As Christians, as the title of my message shows, we ought to be characterized by the phrase, I couldn't care more, not by the phrase, I couldn't care less. Um, We should really, truly care for one another and for all people. And in our text, we see the Apostle Paul's heart for these new converts in Thessalonica Paul is saying, basically, I couldn't care more, and he expresses his feelings for these children in the faith. And it's a very emotional expression here that Paul gives us. He wants them to know 
how deeply he cares about them, how painful his forced separation from them is for him. And that theme, as I said, runs all the way down through the end of chapter 3. So next time, it'll be kind of the same theme with a couple of different points. But for this morning, we want to focus on how we can care for people deeply. Um, If we want to impact people for eternity, we've got to care for them. And here in our text, we see that if we truly care for one another then we're going to want to be together because caring happens best when we're face-to-face. And besides that, we will want to be together so that we strengthen and encourage one another spiritually. That's the aim of caring. In verses 17 to 20 of chapter 2, we see Paul's deep desire to be with these people um, who had become very dear to him. He couldn't come to them, though, due to reasons beyond his own control. And so he does the next best thing. He sends Timothy as his envoy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith, even though it meant Paul then had to be left alone in Athens. After Timothy returned to Paul with good news, um, which we'll read about in verse 6 and following, Uh, Paul heard the condition of the church there. He was overall encouraged, uh, but there were some concerns, and so he wrote this letter uh, to deal with some of the issues that Timothy had reported to him. One of those issues was that Paul's enemies, the ones who had driven him out of town, were now maligning his motives. They were saying to these new converts things like, you know, okay, We understand how you got carried away with these guys. They're kind of charismatic foreigners. They breezed in here. They gave you their line. Uh, You were taken in by them, and we understand that. But, you know, if they had really cared about you, they wouldn't have skipped town so fast. You know, they left town. You haven't heard from them since. That shows they don't really care about you. Probably they're relaxing in some luxury hotel somewhere by the beach and and laughing about how they took all of you suckers in with this uh, foreign message about this guy, Jesus. You don't know that much about him. And now you're suffering because you claim you're following him. Why don't you just give up all that stuff about Jesus and get back to leading a normal life, and you won't have the problems you're having now. So that was the kind of uh, pitch that these false... Uh, are these these opponents of Paul uh, were giving these new converts, and Paul is concerned. And so he shares his heart here to show them how much he really cares for them and how, if he could, he'd be back there in a moment's notice to be with them. The first thing we learn, though, here is that if we truly care for one another, then we'll want to be together. Three things to note here. First of all, The desire to be together stems from our genuine caring for one another. That's verse 17. He says again, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, or literally not in heart, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. You remember the story. It's in the book of Acts chapter 17. Paul's enemies came to the house of a new convert named Jason, thinking they would 
lay hands on Paul. In God's providence, Paul wasn't there, so they dragged Jason before the city authorities and charged him with sedition and all kinds of things. He had to post a bond, probably saying that Paul would cause no further trouble or some such. And when they got back, they told Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, given the situation here, it's pretty tense. We think you need to leave town now, not later. And so under the cover of darkness, they left and went west about 50 miles to Berea. Um, and uh, Paul then said, I, I'm taken from you. I've been taken away from you. And that word is a, a Greek word that's often used for either children who are taken away from their parents or parents who are taken away from their children. And any parent knows there would be nothing more emotionally heart-rending than if the authorities came and ripped your children away from your home. And that's how Paul says he felt here. It's emotional. And he piles up these words to express how he feels. He says, we were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. And that word desire is almost always in the New Testament used of sinful lust. When you sinfully lust after someone, there's a strong emotional tug or feeling. Now, of course, here in this context, the word is used in purity. But Paul just means we really, really feel deeply about you guys. And we we are so torn up that we can't be with you. Uh, Down in verse 10, which we'll look at next time, he, he says, we night and day... Keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. And he he is sharing his heart, his emotions. And this isn't unique. Paul does this all through the New Testament. Uh, With the Philippians, where he had just been before he came to Thessalonica, he tells them in chapter 1, he has them in his heart, and then he adds in Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection and that word, refers to your gut, you know. I just, I feel deeply uh, with you the affection uh, of Christ Jesus that we might uh, see your face again. And on a personal level later when he's in prison and he's missing Timothy, he writes to his son in the faith in 2 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. And he says, I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Uh, There's a very emotional scene in the book of Acts too that shows us not only how much Paul cared for his converts, but the fact that they cared for him. The scene is in Miletus. Paul has called the Ephesian elders to come and meet with him. And uh, he has let them know that probably they will no longer see his face. This probably, as far as Paul knew, was his final meeting with these men whom he had probably brought to faith and then discipled for a number of years. They were the shepherds over the church in Ephesus. And he, we read this description, Acts 20, 36 to 38. When he had said these things, he, being Paul, knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud. And embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken 
to them that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. So you see the emotion there, the feelings that Paul had for these converts and they had for Paul. You notice in our text that Paul calls these people, verse 17, brethren or brothers and sisters, it could be translated. When the Spirit of God takes a person who is dead in their sins, the Thessalonians were a bunch of pagans when Paul came to town, and he causes them to be born again, they are born into a family, the family of God. And it means that when you come to know Christ, you're part of that family. I think you've all had the experience I have, sometimes traveling in Asia or Europe or somewhere far away from home, and, and you meet a brother or sister in Christ. And instantly there's, there's a bond there. It's an inexplicable feeling of, this is my family. I don't know the person very well, but they know Jesus and I know Jesus, and we're both in the family of God. And the thing about families is they should want to be together often. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Oh, boy, if you knew my family, Thanksgiving is coming. Oh, what will I do? You know, we all have those members in our family, okay? Members that maybe are difficult to be around. And to be honest, no family is perfect and no church is perfect. We've got difficult people. None of you, of course, but... You know, they they attend here occasionally. And uh, we all have to learn to get along with one another in the family. That's just how families are. Uh, but God has designed the family as the basic unit of society, and the church is the basic unit of the kingdom of God, that we would be a part of the family of God here. And the church is a place where you should come and you're accepted because you're family. You're a member of of God's family through faith in Christ. In light of that, I've never quite understood, and I'm going to step on some toes here, but sorry if the shoe fits, wear it. I've never quite understood people, and we have them, they come and attend here, and immediately when the service is over, they're out that door. And they never hang out with the family. We have a social time, They don't come. You know, there's the time every Sunday between services when you can interact. They're not there. They they just don't hang out with their brothers and sisters. And I've had this experience. Maybe a guy comes to me and he, he says, I'm really struggling with porn. And I share with him a little bit from Scripture and we pray. But then inevitably I'll ask him, what brother do you know in this church, brother in Christ, who could meet with you and help you and hold you accountable and pray with you each week. Long silence. Answer, I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone. It's like saying, I I don't know my own family. You need to be a part of the family of God. Same thing happens. I don't understand this. We have a prayer time Sunday night. We have a missionary sharing Sunday night. About 300 people total come here on Sunday morning. Sunday night, we're going, yay, we got 30. One out of 10. Where are the rest of you? I hope you're not home watching TV. You know, I'm trusting you've got productive things you're doing for the kingdom. 
But the family should want to be together. Together for prayer, together to hear how God's working in missions, together for teaching, whatever, you know. We're family, and um, we ought to hang out together. You need the family. Home fellowships is another way you can connect. Men's studies, women's studies, all sorts of opportunities. So the family should want to be together. Well, why doesn't it happen? Well, not always for this reason, but we see in our text that our enemy works to hinder our getting together. That's the next verse, verse 18. Paul explains, for we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once, he's, he's making sure they know this is very personal. It's not a generic we. <clears throat> and yet Satan hindered us. You know, I don't know about you. Maybe I don't think about that enemy as often as I should. Days go by, I don't really think about the spiritual battle that Paul describes in Ephesians 6 where he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, folks, but against these hideous, unseen forces of darkness in the heavenly places, evil spirits. And and like a wolf preying on the flock, Satan likes to prey on the stray member. You know, the, the wolf waits till one of the sheep is behind and the flock has moved on and That's where he pounces. And that's how Satan gets people, get them away from the body, away from any brothers and sisters, and then he comes in and attacks. The word that Paul uses here for hindered was used of armies that would destroy a road. They would cut a road in half or dig a big trench. So when the other opposing army came to attack them, they got slowed down or stopped because they couldn't get across where the road had been uh, torn up. And that's the idea of hindering. Now, a question arises here, though, and that is, and I'm not going to answer it for you, but you can probe it with me. How did Paul know that it was Satan that was hindering him? There's an interesting passage in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas and Timothy, same three guys that were here in Thessalonica, uh, They were in Asia, which was modern-day Turkey. And we read this. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia. That's up on the northern coast of Turkey where the Burns family are. And, And they were trying to get up there. And notice what it said, the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, we're not told how the Holy Spirit forbade Paul and these missionaries from moving further north and east up into Turkey there and instead directed them to go to the west. It could have been a direct voice from God. He might have spoken to Paul. It might have been an inner feeling of unrest, whereas the missionaries prayed about it. They all agreed, you know, I just don't sense that's where we ought to go. Sometimes there's that inner 
I don't know about that decision. It could have been circumstances. We don't know. And uh, we don't know how it was that Paul now knew Satan is the one hindering me from returning to Thessalonica. Um, Paul knew the Old Testament, though. And in the Old Testament, we see Satan working to cause problems for the people of God, but he's on a leash. In the book of Job, God tells Satan, you can go this far, but don't go a step further. And then Satan comes back to him, and God says, all right, you can go that far, but no further. And God is sovereign in using Satan to bring problems to the righteous Job. There's another interesting glimpse into the spirit world in Daniel chapter 10, where Daniel has been fasting and praying for uh, insight into this vision that he had in chapter 9. And uh, to summarize it, this, this is a paraphrase, but an angel shows up and he says to Daniel, in effect, you know, I would have been here sooner, but I got hung up with the prince of Persia. He's referring to a demonic power that is over Persia, modern Iran. He said, I, I was hindered, and, uh, and then Michael, the archangel, came and, and helped me out in the battle, and now I'm here to tell you what the meaning of the vision was. It's an incredible window shade passage where you go up and you go, whoa, all that's going on behind the scenes. Window shade comes down, end of insight into that. But uh, here, we don't know what the hindrance was. It could have been... The bond that Jason had been forced to post, maybe he had been made to promise, uh, Paul will leave town and won't be back. I don't know. It could have been a health issue. Many think that Paul's thorn in the flesh that he calls a messenger of Satan sent to buffet me could have been a health issue. It's an interesting text because God is using Satan to keep Paul humble And Satan isn't in the business of making saints more godly, is he? Uh, He usually would want to puff up our pride. But God takes a demon and sends him to Paul to keep Paul humble. Amazing text. Could have been a health issue. Uh, We just don't know. But the point is, Paul wanted to return. And down in verse 10, Paul is praying night and day earnestly that he could return And as far as we know, it was about five years before Paul got back to Macedonia. Uh, That gives me comfort that Paul didn't always get instant answers to his prayers. You know, sometimes we pray and we don't get an answer and we go, something must be wrong with me. You know, I pray and I pray and I pray and I'm praying earnestly and I'm praying all the time. And Paul prays earnestly for five years, night and day, Lord, let me go back to Thessalonica. And finally, God was gracious and Paul went back. But for now, Satan's blocking his way. There are some Bible teachers today who tell Christians that they have authority over the devil. And in the words of one commentator, that we can command Satan around as if he were our trained poodle. You know, be gone. Well... James 4.7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So in that sense, we do have that promise from God. But that is not a slam dunk, easy, do it and it's done kind of promise. Sometimes 
there is a long, long battle before the devil flees from you. And, and so we need to be like Paul, waiting on the Lord. Sometimes the Lord has a purpose we don't understand on why Satan is plaguing us. Job. I don't know that Job understood what was going on in the heavenlies. God had a purpose to vindicate his name before Satan. Job's just down there suffering, loss of everything. Um, Sometimes, as I said, God uses the devil to keep us humble, as with Paul. Sometimes God wants us to pray more fervently and longer, like Daniel. He fasted and prayed for three weeks. He probably wouldn't have done that if the angel had shown up on day one or two. So we don't know God's reason behind some of these things. We just need to remember this. Our unseen enemy doesn't like us getting together. Sometimes it's inevitable. Yeah, you can't make it. But we need to be together to be spiritually strengthened and encouraged with our family, the body of Christ. A third thing to note here is that the final result of our being together is going to be overflowing joy in the presence of the Lord Jesus at his coming. That's verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Uh, Several things we learn here. One is something we all know, at least give lip service to, Jesus is Lord, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is coming, not just spiritually, he is coming. And when he comes, it's going to be a glorious time, a glorious day in which he is going to reward everyone according to his deeds. And uh, because of that, the Apostle Paul live constantly with a view to eternity, with a view to that day. And uh, he is concerned, not just here in verse 5, but in many other texts, I listed some of them in in your printed notes, Um, he's concerned that he would have run in vain. Isn't that incredible? We're talking about the Apostle Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament, founded churches all over the the then-civilized world, and he's saying, oh, I hope I haven't run in vain. Wow. How about us? But Paul just piles up words again here to emphasize how much these Thessalonian believers meant to him. He calls them our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation. Verse 20, he adds again, You're our glory and our joy. He tells the Philippians similarly in Philippians 4.1 that there is joy in his crown. And that word crown, the Greek word Stephanos, from which my name comes, Stephen, it meant a, a wreath, a garland that they would weave and it would be put on the head of the Olympic victors. They didn't get a gold medal then. They got a wreath that quickly faded. Uh, The Greek word exaltation means boasting, and glory sometimes means the same thing. And those words sometimes, of course, are used in a sinful sense to refer to human pride and boasting. 
But here and elsewhere, they are used legitimately to refer to what God has done through us. Uh, You might wonder, well, how can Paul say that his hope and his joy and his crown are, are these people when his hope and joy and crown is the Lord? And there's no contradiction. He says in Galatians 6.14, I don't boast or glory in anything but the cross of Christ. Well, here he's glorying in what the cross of Christ accomplished through him uh, with these people. Everything is due to God's grace. And if God can use us and use the gospel through us to transform somebody, all the glory goes to God. But it is gratifying When you find out, you know, God really used me in the life of that person. Wow. Uh, There's fruit for eternity. So, the point here is, then again, if we really care for one another, we ought to desire uh, deeply to be together. And we shouldn't just want to get together to talk about the weather and sports. I mean, there's nothing wrong, per se, with small talk. But eventually, when we're together, we ought to get below the surface and say, Hey, how are things going? You know, how are you doing in the Lord? The Lord been showing you anything in the Word? We ought to strengthen and encourage one another spiritually. Um, and, and that's the second point here, the second main point in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3, that if we truly care for one another, then we'll strengthen and encourage one another spiritually when we're together. Again, let me just break this down into three parts. First of all, to see others strengthened and encouraged in their faith is often costly. That's verses 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. We can't put it all together from Acts, but trying to put together Acts and the epistles, we learn that when Paul was in Berea, uh, there were enemies that came from Thessalonica to Berea, and he had to leave town, but Silas and Timothy were left behind with instructions, come to me at Athens as soon as you can. So Paul heads about 200 miles south on a ship to Athens. Uh, Timothy and Silas joined him there sometime later. But Paul is just in agony, as our text shows, about what is going on in Thessalonica. How are these new converts doing? We know they're, they're suffering persecution. Are they standing firm? Timothy, I hate to do it because I love you here, brother, but I think you need to go. And so Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. Uh, We think probably Silas was sent then to Macedonia somewhere, maybe back to Philippi. And that meant Paul is all alone in this pagan city of Athens. No other believers he knows of. And then he moved over to Corinth where finally um, uh, Timothy and Silas finally rejoined him eventually. But we see the sacrifice it was for Paul in sending Timothy by the way he describes him here as our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. There's a variant there in the Greek text that reads God's servant. Some have that. God's fellow worker is a little more of a startling uh, description. 
how can we, mortals that we are, work in tandem with God? But that's true, isn't it? We all are fellow workers with the living God. True, we're earthen vessels. But that's so the surpassing glory might not be in us, but in the Lord with the treasuries put in us. But it was painful for Paul to part with Timothy. But Paul wasn't thinking mainly of his own needs. I really need Timothy with me. He was thinking, I need to find out how they're doing. And Timothy needs to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. So Timothy, you go. And I'll stay here. And probably took several months before Timothy could get there, find out how things were going, do his mission, and return. But sometimes the point is this. When you genuinely care for others, it's going to cost you. Cost you your time, maybe money, maybe emotional pain, you know, stress. All kinds of things happen, but we care about others. That's the idea, and it's costly. The second thing here is that the main area where we need to be encouraged and strengthened is our faith. Now, if you have a Bible, you might flip through these verses with me real quickly. Um, It's a main theme here. In Ephesians, I mean, uh, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3, Paul mentions their work of faith. And then down in verse 8, he mentions uh, how the word has sounded forth. Uh, about their faith toward God. And then here in chapter or in chapter 2, I should say, verse 13, Paul mentions how the Word of God performs its work in you who believe. Same idea as faith. Then in chapter 3, verse 2, he mentions strengthen your faith. In chapter 3, verse 5, he mentions how I wanted to find out about your faith. Chapter 3, verse 6, Uh, Good news of your faith, chapter 3, verse 7. He says, uh, we've been comforted about you through your faith. Chapter 3, verse 10, uh, we wanted to complete what is lacking in your faith. And then you jump over to 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 3. He mentions how your faith is greatly enlarged. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians, he mentions... uh, all who have believed, including the Thessalonians. Uh, Verse 11, uh, he mentions how God is going to perform through them the work of faith. Chapter 2, verse 12 of 2 Thessalonians, he mentions those who did not believe the truth. And then um, in verse 13 of that verse, um, he mentions uh, God has chosen you from the beginning through salvation or for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, he mentions how not all men have faith. But faith in the Lord is a major theme throughout this book. And um, it can mean several things. It can be the equivalent of being a Christian. Uh, It can refer to um, believing the gospel It can refer to trusting God to work through us. The work of faith is mentioned several times. Uh, I believe here in the context, though, it especially refers to what we need the most in trials. When you're going through trials, 
what you need is faith in God and his promise because the enemy comes in and tries to get you to believe God must not care for you. You know, nobody cares for you. If anybody cared for you and if God cared for you, this wouldn't be happening to you. And so he attacks us in a time of trials. And, and so faith has to be specific in God, in the gospel, in the promise of God, through the gospel, in his word. Faith is not just this nebulous, I believe for every drop of rain that falls, the flower grows and all that. That's all wonderful, but that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith says God wrote this in his word, that if I trust in Christ, I am his child. I have eternal life. All my sins have been forgiven. And, and God cares for me. And so now, even though I'm going through this, God, I trust in you. I believe in you. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We have that word in the Bible. In Romans 14, 23, he says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And you're familiar with Hebrews eleven six that says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because uh, the one who comes to him, to God, must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So faith is essential for the Christian life and especially in a time of trials to hang on to God and his promises. Um, but then also notice that trials are a main hindrance to being strengthened and encouraged in our faith. That's why Paul sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And then he adds in verse 3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. He meant not only his, but theirs. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it has come to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Would you notice what Paul distinctly did not teach these new converts? He did not teach them, you're now a king's kid and you can claim prosperity and instant healing by faith. Just name it and claim it, and it's yours. That heresy somehow has spread, not only in North America, but all over Asia and Africa and Latin America, and it is straight from the pit of hell. Back in 1987, Marla and I were in Macau, and uh, it was not yet a part of China, and we were sitting talking through a translator to a young woman who every week risked her life and imprisonment by sneaking across the border into Red China, and she would mail a number of Bible study lessons to prisoners in China. If she had been caught, she would have immediately been incarcerated. And I, as I was talking with her and just marveling at her courage and faith, I, I said to her, told her about the health and wealth thing that was just kind of getting going in America I said, is that a problem in China? <laughs> and she kind of laughed quietly and shook her head. And she said, 
There's no way that that doctrine would catch on when people are going to prison for their faith. Well, times have changed. We were back in China next in 2010 in Beijing. When we were in Guangzhou and in Macau and the first time we were there, we went into Guangzhou in southern China. The only cars we saw were taxi cabs and an occasional um, car, but not many. Everyone was on bikes and buses. And then we went back in 2010, and there are Mercedes and BMWs and, and Lexus and all these fancy cars all over the streets of Beijing. And China has become very materialistic and westernized. And guess what? The health and wealth gospel is spreading throughout China. It's not a gospel. It's bad news because it's false. But it's all over the world. How could that happen unless the enemy is behind it? It's just deception. It's deception. We need to teach new believers to suffer. Um, Simeon. Well, first of all, Paul says here, we're destined for this. That means predestined or appointed. Simeon telling Mary, prophesying about the baby Jesus. Luke 2.34 says this. Behold, this child, Jesus, is destined. That's the word in Greek. Appointed. For the rise and fall, fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign to be opposed. Paul used the same word in Philippians 1.16 of his own ministry. He said, I've been appointed, destined for the defense of the gospel. Jesus told his disciples, John 15.20, if they persecuted me, then they're going to persecute you also. And he added in John 16.33, these things I have spoken to you. So that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have health and wealth. No, you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Paul said in Romans 8.17 that we need to suffer with Christ so that we may be glorified with him. Uh, What Paul is doing here, sending Timothy to encourage and uh, strengthen and encourage them in their faith, Paul himself had done with his new converts in Asia. In Acts 14, 21 and 22, it says, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. That's where Paul had been stoned uh, with rocks, is what I mean. And uh, to Iconium and to Antioch. You have to clarify these things these days. And here's what he was doing, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. That's exactly what he's sending Timothy to do. And then it says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And as Paul languished in prison, just short of being executed, he wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, and said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't believe the lie of the devil that um, health and wealth is our our, uh, claim. Teach new believers you will suffer. Here's how to trust God when you suffer. Otherwise, they're going to get hit by the enemy. They'll think something's uh, wrong with them. 
And uh, trials are going to come as a test of the genuineness of our faith. Remember the parable of the sower? Jesus described the four types of seed that were sown, where they landed. Some of it landed on the rocky soil. And in that culture, that meant there was a thin layer of dirt and then a hard, impermeable surface over it. So the seed sent down a, a root a little ways, couldn't go deep because of the rock, sprouted up right away, but then the sun came out, and because it had no moisture from below, it quickly faded and wilted and didn't bear fruit. As I understand that parable, it's only those that bear fruit that are truly born again. And Jesus is warning, there are many who, oh, yes, yes, I believe. Bam, they get hit with the trial. They give up the faith. And I think that's what Paul is referring to here uh, in verse 5 when he talks about fearing that his labor might have been in vain. Now you say, well, isn't fear or anxiety sin? There is a godly kind of fear or anxiety and there is a sinful kind. The sinful kind is when we are not praying. And it's obvious here that Paul is praying. He talks all through this letter about his prayers, like in verse 10, night and day, we're praying most earnestly for these dear people. Uh, That's Paul's godly concern for all the churches. It's the concern every parent knows. You pray with fervency for your kids. Are you anxious about them? Well, admittedly, yeah, a little bit. I am. Is that sin? Well, it can cross into sin if I'm not trusting God, but if I say, I don't care, you know, yeah, let them get hit by a car. They're out there playing in the street. You don't love your kids. You're concerned about them. You, you have anxious feelings about their safety uh, when they do things, you know, that are dangerous. And tell me about it later, please. Uh, I didn't want to know beforehand because I would be anxious. That's godly anxiety. Sinful anxiety is when we really don't care. Um, and we haven't prayed. So the point is this. If you see a new believer, or even a mature believer, and they're going through trials, they need you. Come alongside them. Put your arm around them. Say, I don't know what to say. You don't have to say anything except, hey, I understand you're having a hard time, and I just want you to know I care about you. Let's pray. And I'm here. And, And that's what we need caring for one another. There's a man named Frank Reed. He spent four years, 1986 to 1990, as a hostage in Lebanon. Uh, Much of the time he was a hostage, he was blindfolded. Some of the time he was chained to a wall in silence all by himself. And he was beaten. He was made sick. He was tortured. But he felt that the biggest lack he had The biggest need he had was the lack of anyone caring. He did an interview with Time Magazine, and he said this, Nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist without a single expression of caring around me. I learned one overriding fact. Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares... You are truly alone. Now, as Christians, we're never alone, even if we don't have the body of Christ, because in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter 
tells us to cast all our anxiety on the Lord, and then he assures us because he cares for you. So we always have the Lord caring, but the Lord put us in a family to care. And that's important as well, that we should care for one another in the family. And if we really care for one another, we should want to be together often. And the point of being together is to strengthen and encourage one another in the faith. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, the most caring thing I can say to you is this. You're in big, big trouble. Because the Bible says your sin has separated you from the holy God. And furthermore, you cannot do anything to work your way to heaven. The Bible says all the good works in the world don't cancel out the debt of sin we owe. But the great news is Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and he died on the cross in the place of all who will simply trust in him. And when we believe in Jesus, God credits all our sin to Jesus and all his righteousness to us as a free gift. And the most caring thing I can say is believe in Jesus today. None of us know if we'll have tomorrow. Believe now. Come to Christ now. Turn to him from your sin and say, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, the sinner. And you'll have his care for you every single day. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray if any are here without Jesus, that you would open their hearts to their desperate need for a savior, a rescuer of sinners and that they would flee to Christ in faith this morning. I pray, Lord, we would be a caring body, that nobody would come here and feel like nobody cares for me, that we would love one another from the heart and express that in practical ways, that your love would shine through this body to every person here and to our community and We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.